Hey, thanks so much for tuning in to the Relove Podcast. This is Pastor Seth Yolorda, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to listen to this week's message. Our prayer is that it will leave you inspired, encouraged, and challenged as you grow higher in Christ. And I also just want to ask that if this message is a blessing to you, that you would take the time to share it, to send it to a friend, send it to a family member so that they too can be blessed. Again, we thank you for taking the time to listen, and we pray that you are blessed. Like me, we, we, we know it, we know. That's the modern version, the one that we just sang, but most of you all probably know the original version, right? Let's just stand right where you are. We just want to invite you to just lift your hands and lift your voice and to sing that with us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Can you just join us as we sing that again and just worship God in this moment? Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we just thank you for your amazing grace, your amazing grace that saved a wretch like me with our brokenness and with our issues and with our drama and with all of our dysfunction that did not keep you from coming and rescuing and drawing us close to you. But Lord, that's what compelled you to come and say, I'm going to come and save my children. It was the love that you had for us. So much that you sent your son to die for us that we can forever be with you in glory. And so we thank you. We praise you for the amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We thank you, God, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Listen, thank you, praise team. Thank you for just leading us in worship and just helping us to get a, a glimpse, a picture of who God is and how he wants to operate. And I just want to thank you for worshiping with us. And I pray that wherever you are right now, that you might know that God's grace is indeed amazing. Can you just put it in the chat, amazing grace? If you've ever experienced the grace of God, amazing grace, amazing grace, amazing grace, can you just put that in the chat right now? No matter if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, and maybe you just wanna text somebody just randomly and let them know God's grace is amazing and it saved a wretch just like you. Yeah, you can put that in the text message. It saved your hips, right? You can let them know that God's grace is amazing and that it has come to save us. And if you have been with us for the last two weeks, we have been talking about our mindset and how God desires us to experience a healthy, whole, positive, redeemed mindset. Uh, last week, we actually talked about how God has created us in his image to be fruitful and that it is the, the tool of the enemy to create shame in our lives 
Now, as I talked about it last week, I don't know if you really caught it. I don't know if you really caught it. And so I just, I just want to help somebody catch it. Wait, Ricky, can you just come up here for me real quick? I just want to help, I want to help somebody catch it. I want to help somebody catch it real quick. I think, it's, I think it'll be best understood if I just really just speak it over somebody in this place, right? And I want Ricky, who's standing here, I want him. You, he is representing all of you who are watching this online right now. And so I just want to make sure that you really catch the essence that Ricky, that you were... You were created in the image of God, that when you came from your mother's womb and that when you were born into this world, that when God looked down upon you, he saw a picture of himself before you even were born. He said, I want to make man in my image. I want him to look like me. I want him to have my character. I want him to have my heart. And so, yes, you are all of that in a bag of chips, right? You were created in the image of God. And a part of that image that he created you in is for you to be fruitful, right? Fruitful in that, yes, he wants you to love and have joy and have patience and kindness and all of that, but also fruitful in that he wants you to be a producer. If you think about what he did in Genesis 1 with Adam and Eve, he said, listen, be fruitful and multiply, go out, name the animals, take care of this place, tend and keep the garden. And that's the same word that he's spoken over you, that he wants you to be fruitful in all that you do. I know you have your music company and you have your wedding company and that you were trying to sow joy and positivity into people's lives. And God is like, you know what? I can imagine that he's standing on in heaven and he's clapping his hands when he sees you producing fruit. When he sees you creating and being innovative and coming up with ideas that can take care of your family by generating income, that can bless other people by adding value to them. He's like, yes, that is what I've created Ricky to do. I've created him to be fruitful. But the reality is, is that in addition to God's dream for you, which is fruitfulness, the devil also has a plan. And the devil's plan is to not just kill your soul. He recognizes that God's placed a hedge around you and that he might not be able to take you out in a car accident. He might not be able to get you to die physically, but what he can do is he can kill your mentality. And so what the devil does, he says, you know what? Let me kill Ricky's fruitfulness. I might not be able to kill his life, but I can kill his fruitfulness. I can kill his ability to produce. I can kill his ability to be creative. I can kill his ability to sow into other people and be a positive blessing to those around him. I can kill his ability to protect his family and, protect and provide for his family. And I can kill Ricky's fruitfulness by shame. Because what shame says is shame says, you know what, I'm not good enough. I, I, I'm not accepted. I'm not approved. No one's going to buy my product. No one's going to hire me. No one's going to want my services. So therefore, let me, like our first parents did, let me hide who I really am. And so the devil has come and he has sown shame into Ricky's mind and shame into my mind and shame into all of our minds because he recognizes if he can't destroy our soul, he will try to kill our fruitfulness. And then what he does is he comes along after that and he says, you know what? Not only am I going to sow shame into Ricky's mind, but now I also want to make sure that that shame is multiplied. And so, yes, Ricky, uh, you have the ability to be fruitful, you have the ability to produce, you have the ability to create, and you will do that, but because the devil has shown sown shame, these seeds of shame in our lives, making us feel as though we're not good enough and that we, we're not approved by others or by God or by ourselves, he multiplies our brokenness. He multiplies it. So it's not just something now that affects my life or Ricky's life, but now it affects his family's life and his friend's life. And he begins to multiply our brokenness. So now rather than Ricky walking around with his head held high, recognizing that he's a child of the king, recognizing that he was made in the image of God, recognizing that he is fearfully and wonderfully made, and that God has plans and purposes and, 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 and things that he wants him to accomplish, Ricky now walks around with his head hanging low. Ricky now walks around with anxiety and depression and fear and guilt because he recognizes, oh, I'm not, he thinks I'm not good enough. No one will buy my product. No one will love me. I'm not worthy. I can't accomplish this. And so now the shame is being multiplied in his life. Rather than being built on abundance, his life is now built on brokenness. And this all is an attack of the enemy. And it's not an attack on our physical bodies. It's an attack on our soul on our mind. And so we are determined in this series, in this month, to liberate your mind, 
to help you understand that no, 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 you have nothing to be ashamed of. Yes, you made some mistakes. Ricky, you made some mistakes. And the devil will try to multiply the, 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 the gravity of those mistakes in your mind. But what you have to understand, Ricky, and what you have to understand, all those who are watching, is that you are forgiven. You're forgiven. And because you're forgiven, you have nothing to be ashamed of. And so I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that God would not just give us the ability to continue to produce because it's not a production issue. It's not a fruitfulness issue. We will bear fruit regardless. We talked about that last week. You are going to bear fruit. It's going to be either fruits of abundance or fruits of brokenness. So my prayer for you is that you would understand that you are forgiven and that as we go into part two, part, part three of this message today, that you will understand that not only do you have nothing to be ashamed of, but that you would also understand that there is no condemnation for you. Let me pray with you. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that we are forgiven in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you have set us free because of what you have done, that we are no longer slaves. We thank you, oh God. And my prayer is that each one of us would accept the forgiveness that you so freely bestow upon us and that as a result of your the forgiveness that you have over our lives, that we would walk with our heads up high with confidence knowing that we have nothing to be ashamed of. And that now as we dive into this message today, oh God, that you would open our hearts and that you would help us to better understand even still how we can deal with and wrestle with and overcome the feelings of guilt that so many of us have. Lord, as we open your word right now, open our hearts in Jesus' name, amen. So today, we are diving into this topic called guilt. And I just think that this topic is so very important for us as the body of Christ and for us as individuals who live in this world to really understand because for so many of us, myself included, guilt plays such a large role in our lives. And that really isn't even a laughing matter when you think about how so many individuals, the reason why we behave the way we behave or we do the things that we do or we get involved in the relationships that we get involved in, so many of us have been driven by this cloud of guilt that just hovers over us. Now, when you think about what guilt is, guilt, the, the technical definition for it is guilt is the reality of being liable to punishment because of something that we've done. Said it even more simply is because of something that you have done, you feel like you now are open to and liable for punishment because of your behavior or because of your actions or because of the choices that you have made. And yet, when you look at the gospel, Christ has, the gospel has a very specific message for those who are struggling with guilt because guilt is, in fact, one of the enemy's weapons against the people of God. We've talked about, we just talked about how he wants to attack our fruitfulness, and he will use shame to attack our fruitfulness, and he will use guilt to attack our fruitfulness. And yet, if you are battling or wrestling with or have ever battled, which I'm sure you have, or have ever wrestled with guilt, I want to let you know that you're in good company today. Because when you look through scriptures, there is not an individual in the Bible outside of Jesus himself who has not battled with and wrestled with guilt on some level. Because all of us and all of them have sinned. I mean, think about Abraham. Abraham was a liar. Abraham was someone who did not keep his word, and he was afraid, and Abraham dealt with guilt. Moses was a murderer, and he dealt with guilt. Rahab was a prostitute, and I'm sure she dealt with guilt. Solomon was a womanizer. Paul was guilty of killing Christians. Peter literally denied Jesus almost to his face, and yet and yet all of these individuals, Abraham and Moses and Rahab and, and Solomon and Paul and even Peter, 
all of these men and women in the Bible are really uplifted and heralded as, as exemplars of, of faith, men and women of faith who did many mighty things, and yet all of them have some type of spotted, spotty, messed up past that in spite of what they've done, God still used them. And so, and so when we talk about guilt, I want to let you know that if you are battling guilt, it's not because you, you've done something wrong per se, uh, because guilt really is an attack of the enemy against the fruitfulness of God's people. And I want you to get this. Guilt is an attack of the enemy against the fruitfulness of God's people. Because if he knows that if he can get you to embrace guilt and to feel guilty, then that guilt, if not addressed and if not reconciled, will drive you into shame. If guilt goes unaddressed, it will drive you into shame, shame which we dealt with last week. So today I actually want to take time and I want to look at a very specific text in the Bible. Um, It's a long passage and we're going to read through all of it. It is in 2 Timothy, excuse me, 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And this is a story in the Word of God where we read about David. David was uh, a man who was after God's own heart. But yet in 2 Samuel in chapter 11, we find David finding himself in a particular situation where he did not necessarily do certain things the way he should have done things. So let's just read this together. 2 Samuel chapter 11, um, verses, and we're going to start with verse 1. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite armies to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, at his midday, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home, and later when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent message saying, I am pregnant. Now, we already know off the jump, like David is all the way wrong for what's taking place in this moment right now. Um, it's, it's one thing to see a beautiful young lady and then to want to engage her. It's another thing to see a beautiful young lady to find out that she's married, and yet you still got the boldness and the entitlement to feel like you can still take her as your own. Like, we know that he is totally in the wrong for this situation. The Bible says in verse 8, then David sent word to Joab, right? Now, now that he hears that she's pregnant and that she's pregnant with his child but that's not by her husband. The Bible says in verse 8 that David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. Uh, and when Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how he was, the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace, but Uriah didn't go home. No, no, no. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him to ask, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, the ark ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab, my master's men, are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. So here you see a man of significant integrity who is basically saying, hey, because all my boys are not able to, you know, be at home with their wives and they're out in the middle of the field, I'm not going to engage in any behavior that they can't engage in as well. And so he was a person of integrity. Verse 12 says, well, David says, stay here today. And David told him, and tomorrow you can return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day. And the next, and then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even, but even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. David is clearly trying to cover up his tracks because he know he wrong. Like, like he know he's wrong, wrong, wrong for what he has done. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with his king's palace guard. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then pull back so that he will be killed. This is 
David literally trying to go all out to make sure that he is delivered from this unnecessary and unfortunate situation that he finds himself in. So now he's willing to kill a man. So Joab answered Uriah to, so Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight Uriah, the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. He told his messengers, report all the news of the battle to the king. But But he might get angry and ask, why did the troops get so close to the city? Didn't they know there would be shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech, son of Gideon, killed at Thebes by a woman who threw a millstone down on him from the wall? Why would you get so close to the wall? Then then, Then tell him Uriah the Hittite was killed too. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said, and as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And when the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the place, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. This is the word of the Lord. And here we read a very familiar passage of David and how he is attempting to cover his tracks. And yet, what's funny about sin, and what's funny about how the devil gets us, is that the nature of sin is that it really always seems to take us farther than we ever thought we would go. I I can't imagine that when David saw Bathsheba bathing, that he thought that he would actually go this far to kill her husband. I don't, I, I can't imagine that David was that sinister, that David was that, was that devious, that David was that manipulative, that he was just this individual who said, you know what, I'm going to do what I want to do regardless of the consequence. No, I, 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 I truly feel that David found himself in between a rock and a hard place. Now, was it right? Of course not. And it's by no means is this attempt to justify it. But, but what I'm just trying to do is just to create some context for, for your life and for mine that a lot of times we don't wake up in the morning and say to ourselves, well, I'm going to get myself caught up in this situation. No, we just find ourselves in between two choices, two decisions as a result of a bad decision that we've made. And now we feel like we have to do what we never thought we would do to try to get out of the situation. And this is exactly where David was. And so he, he dealt with the problem. He dealt with the situation. Uriah was dead, and, and now he felt like, okay, well, that situation is covered. I can move forward. But I can just imagine that even though David had dealt with the situation, his conscience was not fully cleared, completely cleared, that he still realized in his spirit when he was just sitting all alone by himself that, you know what, this was this was wrong. I mean, yes, I'm the king, and, and yes, I have a lot of latitude for what I can and cannot do, but I probably crossed the line here. And so the text tells us, in fact, that David at his core was a defender of those who were being persecuted. He was a defender of the oppressed. In this situation, David found himself being the oppressed, the oppressor. And what we see here is that David finds himself receiving a word from the prophet Reminding him, bringing to attention that what he just did, David, you know you're wrong. Let's look at it in verse, in chapter 12. The text says, so the Lord sent Nathan, because the Lord was displeased with him. The Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had brought. He raised the little lamb and grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal for his own flock and herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. 
he must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then David said, then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord of the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdom of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and, will go, and, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all of Israel. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for your sins. Nevertheless, because you have, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. So we see here David is experiencing the repercussions and the consequences of his actions, and they are swift and they are sure. And yet when you understand the psyche of David and the mindset of David and what David is experiencing, you understand very clearly in this text that when David is confronted with the, with the horrific deeds that he, had, that he has done, David begins to confess his guilt. He begins to recognize that, you know what, I sh I'm, you're right, I'm wrong, I shouldn't have done this. He feels broken in his heart, and he feels like, you know what, this was not right. And he begins to realize that, you know, whatever the Lord does to me is probably justified because of what I have done. David is someone in this situation who recognizes the error of his ways, and David desires to be freed. Free from the sin and freed from the guilt. And we know this because one of the most popular passages in, in the Psalms is Psalms in chapter 51. And in Psalms in chapter 51, David actually prays a prayer where David is confessing his faults and David is crying out to the Lord and he's asking for forgiveness. We know that this guilt that David is experiencing, the, 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 the consequence for his sin actually drove him to truly experience true repentance that this guilt that David is experiencing is driving him to really confess his, his faults before God and to try to cleanse his way. Now, when you think about guilt, there are a couple different types of guilt that you and I that we deal with. And I just want to I just want to walk you through this real, real quickly. So so is, there is this type of guilt, which we will call is false guilt. And false guilt is when you feel guilty for something that happened to you, but that you really had no control over. Yeah. Many of us live under a false guilt. Maybe it was your father walked out on you and, and abandoned you, and you feel like maybe somehow it was your fault, or maybe something happened to you. Maybe someone took advantage of you emotionally or sexually, and they've tried to frame the scenario or the situation like it was somehow your fault. We see this happen all the time in media where someone experiences some type of sexual abuse, and yet somehow it, it's, the, it's the victim's fault, and, and that victim now has to deal with this false sense of guilt. This is real. It is a guilt where you feel like you have done something wrong, and so therefore you are subject to and liable to punishment when, in fact, you really did nothing wrong. This is a guilt that you feel because of a decision that someone else made. And I just want to speak directly to you right now. That if you are experiencing guilt in your life, a judgment in your life, if you are experiencing a condemnation where you feel like I'm not good enough, I need to do more, I've made too many mistakes, I have to run harder, I have to be better, not because of anything that you've done, but because of what has happened to you. Maybe you feel like, you know what, your parents got divorced and somehow it was your fault that they got divorced. Listen, that is a false guilt and that guilt that guilt, again, is from the enemy. 
that you cannot and you should not and I do not want you to feel guilty for anything that has happened to you that you had no control over. I had no control whether or not my parents got divorced. I had no control over whether or not that person took advantage of me. I had no control over the things that have happened to me in my life where I was just walking in my own lane, minding my own business, and something happened to me, and now somehow I feel guilty because of what's happened to me like I should have avoided it or I should have stopped it or maybe Maybe if I wasn't there, it wouldn't have happened. No, no. Do not allow a false guilt to overcome you. Don't allow it to to place you in the vice grip of its power. No. I can't control every situation, and I am not responsible for every situation. And if something happens to me that I had no control over, if someone chooses to act in a deviant way or someone chooses to, to take advantage of me, it is not my fault, even if I was at the party and even if I did have one too many drinks. It's not your fault if they took advantage of you. That is a false sense of guilt. No. And I do not want you to own that. And I don't want you to wear that. So there is this false guilt that many people deal with. But then the Bible also talks about a guilt, a godly guilt. It is a guilt that leads to conviction. And this is what we experience David experiencing. This is what we see David experiencing, where David says, you know what? Uh, God, God, I feel sorry for what I've done. God, forgive me for what I've done. God, cleanse me from what I've done. We see this again. Paul talks about this godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians in chapter 7. In verse 10, he says, For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. So if, if I go out there and I'm the one who touches the stove and I'm the one who does something and I am the one who acts and it really is truly my fault and I've done something wrong, I should feel a godly sorrow or a guilt that leads to conviction. But it is not a guilt that draws me away from God. It should be a guilt that draws draws me towards God. God, I'm sorry for what I've done. God, um, uh, forgive me for my sins. I shouldn't have done that. And it is a sorrow that calls me and calls me into the presence of God. There, 2 Corinthians 7, there's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But it says, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. Such earnestness, verse 11, such concern to clear yourselves, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal, and such a readiness to punish wrong. You show that you have done everything necessary to make things right. This is that godly sorrow. So there is a, 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 a place for guilt when guilt drives us to the Father in repentance. But that guilt for many of us, it doesn't just drive us to the Father. Many of us, we come to God, and yet we're still holding on to the guilt. And God forgives us, but yet we're still holding on to the guilt. And that is not a godly sorrow. That is a demonic sorrow. Because eventually, if you allow the guilt to dominate your life and the, 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 the punishment and the condemnation to control what you do uh, beyond confessing your faults and asking God for forgiveness, it will eventually lead you away from God. Because this is what guilt says. Guilt says, I have to do more. At its core, guilt says, I have to do more more. If shame says, I am not enough, guilt says, I don't do enough. And so guilt causes you to feel like you need to pray more and read more and study more and fast more and that you have to do more. Somehow you're still falling short of God's glory. Somehow you're still falling short of God's righteousness. Somehow you're still falling short of the love of God and the grace of God. So therefore, I have to do more. I have to be more. I have to do more. I have to be more and keep doing more because somehow if I do more, it begins to quiet my, my conscience and, 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 and assuage the guilt. But listen, activity can never really deal with guilt because if your activity 
is driving you, if your guilt is driving you to do more, then you're not operating under grace. No, you're operating under the law, what we will call legalism, which says that there's something else I have to do to somehow be accepted by God. And that, again, is a tool of the enemy. Because the enemy wants to come in and he wants to say to you, you think you've done enough? You think you're good enough? Look at all the mistakes you've made. In order to make up for all the mistakes you've made, why don't you just do a little bit more? Just go a little bit harder. You don't, you don't read your Bible enough. You only read for 10 minutes. You only read for 30 minutes. You've only read for an hour. You really should have read for two hours, right? If you really were holy, you would have, you would have stayed a little bit longer in the presence of God. Right? You need to do more. Guilt comes in, and guilt that leads to destruction is a guilt that leads us away from God. It is a guilt that leads us away from the presence of God. It is a guilt that leads us away from the peace of God. And it is this guilt that the devil would use to try to destroy our souls. And it is this guilt that I want to free you from today. So when we look at the word, it's clear in David's situation that David felt, he felt guilty. He knew he was wrong. I, I done took another man's wife and not just, not, not just sleep with her, but then I killed the man. And not only committed adultery and caused her to commit adultery, but I'm a murderer as well. Right? David truly felt guilty for what he did. But I want to show you David's prayer of repentance. In Psalms 51. Will, will you turn there with me? In Psalms 51, and this is from the, again, uh, this version I'm going to read is the, the, the New King James Version of Psalms and 51. And, and, and let us look at what David says in Psalms 51. This is his prayer of repentance from the New King James Version. David says, David says, uh, have mercy upon me, O God, verse 1, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil. Uh, we believe that David is talking about his ordeal with Uriah. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in, my, in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in my inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make known to me wisdom, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. David is saying, God, please forgive me. Cleanse me. Forgive me of my transgressions so that when I stand before you and when you see me, O oh God, you don't see my sin. This is the prayer of a man who truly is repentant for his sin, for recognizing I have done wrong. God, I have wronged them. I have wronged you. Uh, I, I have stepped out, out of bounds. This is, I, I am out of pocket. God, please forgive me. God, please cleanse me. Look what he says. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And that's something that we have to talk about when it comes to guilt, is that the role of guilt and shame, for that matter, is that guilt begins to strip us from our joy. It begins to take away from us life and happiness and peace because it is so hard to live under a cloud of guilt because of what you've done and a cloud of shame because of what you've done and yet still simultaneously have the joy of the Lord. It's impossible. You can't live under these two clouds. You can't feel, be driven by guilt and, 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 and have this shame hanging over you and this guilt of judgment and condemnation hovering over you and yet still experience joy and happiness and peace. No, those are two conflicting emotions, two conflicting realities. And so David says, God, please restore to me joy Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. And then look 
what David says in verse 14. He says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. David understood that guilt is a, is a vice grip. That once you do something that is contrary to the will of God, something that you've engaged in, something that has happened to you, and you are being held bound by that thing, that guilt will hold you down. It will drag you down like quicksand. Now, what's interesting is David doesn't say, cleanse me from guilt. No, he says, God, sin is on me. It's, it's on my clothes. It's on my garments. So he said, wash me, God. Get this sin. Get this transgression off of me. But then David recognizes that, that, that the thing that is really holding my life, the thing that has me in its clutches, is guilt. And that you can cleanse me, God, and that you can forgive me, God, and that you can wash me, God, but if you don't deliver me from this guilt, then I will never experience the joy of your salvation. Guilt is a, is a, is a demonic grip of the enemy on our soul, on our joy. And what David says, I want you to get that you and I, when we recognize we've done wrong, and we've done wrong, I want you to understand that my prayer is, yes, God, cleanse me from sin. God, create in me a new heart. But God, also deliver me from this guilt. Because too much guilt doesn't push me towards God. Too much guilt pushes me away from God. How can God accept me? Look what I've done. How can God love me? Look how bad I am. Oh, if I could just do more. Maybe I should go harder. Maybe I should run faster. Maybe I should be, I should be better. Maybe somehow I can prove myself to God. But that is not the gospel. So David's prayer is our prayer. God, deliver me from this, this guilt. The guilt of bloodshed. I've had to deal with this, and I've had to pray this prayer, and there are times in my life where I will think back over some of the things I've done, and the guilt of the, and the pain of my past will try to lead me into shame, but I just remind myself that God has delivered me from guilt, so that I don't walk around with a cloud of, oh, I'm not good enough, or I need to do more. No, I don't walk around with a cloud of guilt over my head because I recognize that while, yes, I have made some mistakes, just like we established last week, yes, we've made some mistakes, but I am forgiven. In fact, I, I want to show you that, that, that that the guilt that you and I battle with and wrestle with, that, that Christ actually dealt with that guilt. Yeah, he actually dealt with that. Let me just show you. In, in Colossians in chapter 2, in verse 14, the Bible says, in Colossians 2, he says, he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Essentially, what Paul is trying to communicate is there is an entire laundry list of sins, all of the things that you have done, all of the things that you have said. All of the places that you have gone and the people that you have slept with and the relationships that you, that you messed up and, and all of the, the, the ugly thoughts that you have thought and all of your evil deeds, there is a record against you. And the devil is constantly trying to remind you and remind God, for that matter, of this record saying, how can you accept her after she's done all these things? How can you accept him after he's done all these things? And what Paul tells us is that God has literally, in Christ, taken that record, the record of, of the charge charges against us, and he took it away and nailed it to the cross. So, so, so when you recognize that, yes, I made some mistakes, but the cross has dealt with your mistakes. And so because of what Christ has done on Calvary, you and I can now live guilt-free. <laughs> guilt-free. We can now live with joy. Not presumption. No. I confess my faults, but I, I don't walk around with guilt. I don't walk around 
feeling as though there's something else I have to do. I walk around with an acute awareness that I am forgiven. And because he took the record of the charges against me and he nailed it to the cross, he says, Seth, (laughs) there is no condemnation against you. No condemnation. You are delivered. Paul says it a little bit differently in Ephesians. He says, in him we have redemption, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. We have the forgiveness of sins. So, yeah, there is a, a false guilt, which, which I pray to God that you are delivered from. And then there is a, a godly sorrow type of guilt that draws us into the presence of God where we, like David, confess our faults. But then there is an ungodly sorrow called true guilt, which draws us not into the presence of God, but it pulls us away from the presence of God because it makes us feel like we are not good enough, that we have to do more. And what I want you to get today is that when you feel guilty for what you have done, that you take that guilt straight to the cross and you say, God, I thank you that yes, while I have made a mistake, you have forgiven me. I am leaving my mistakes and I'm leaving the guilt at the cross. Now, we we realize from David's life that there are consequences So if you continue to read the story, he did lose his child, and he he did experience all types of drama and and infighting in his family. He was run from his kingdom as a result of the consequences of his sin. So there are consequences, and the the forgiveness of God and the cross of Christ is not something that that remedies the physical consequence that that we have to experience as a result of our sin, But what it does do is it remedies the emotional and the spiritual weight that is tied around our neck when we have sinned. And he says, yeah, you you, you might have some consequences, but I am with you and I have forgiven you. And so we praise God that we are no longer slaves. We praise God that there is now no condemnation, that we are literally forgiven in Christ. And it is the forgiveness of God that covers and cleanses us from our sin and delivers us from guilt. Let us pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, We thank you that your word is so clear. (laughs) There is now no condemnation. We read it with, with our eyes and we know it kind of intuitively or at least cognitively, but God, so, 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 so many of us still live under the weight of our sin and under the weight of our mistakes. And that weight has drives us and makes us feel guilty and drives us to feel as though we must do more, we must be more, we must be better. But God, may we just in this moment right now understand that because of what your son did for us, we no longer have to live under the weight of guilt. We no longer have to live under the weight of condemnation. We no longer have to live under a cloud of judgment. But Father, right now in this moment, because of what you have done by sending your son on Calvary, we can live under grace. (laughs) We can live with the reality that you have forgiven us and you have set us free and that we now have liberty in Christ Jesus. God, may we not just hear this with our mind, may we hear it with our hearts. 
may it become so core to who we are that when we wake up and when we look in the mirror in the morning that we don't see someone who is not good enough or someone who is guilty or someone who must do more but God when we look in the mirror may we see someone who is loved may we see someone who is forgiven may we see someone who is covered by the grace and covered by the blood of Jesus Christ may we see someone who is no longer under the cloud of condemnation and shame but now we are free we are free to live boldly, to live courageously, to live daring lives, recognizing that it's not our works that save us. It's not our efforts that can't grant us favor in your sight, but it is us accepting this one simple truth, one simple truth, that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us. And that if we believe in you, we will not perish, but have everlasting life. May that not just become the most quoted verse in all of history, but may that become the theme of our life. Jesus loves me, this I know, because he sent his son to die for me. Lord, we, we thank you. There's someone who's watching right now who needs to accept the grace of God in your life. You need to accept the new reality that you are not condemned, that you are not guilty, that you are no longer living under a weight of guilt, but that God has taken, Jesus has taken your sin to the cross and he has taken your guilt to the cross and he bore it all and in that moment, he has totally set you free so that now you are like that kid in a candy store who can run around and can be free without a care in the world because your guilt has been paid for. Your sin has been covered and you are free indeed. And if you want to accept this freedom in Christ, man, I want you just to pray this prayer with me. Father, I thank you for what you have done. I thank you that I am no longer a slave, but that you have set me free from sin and guilt and shame. And now I can live and I can live abundantly. I accept what your son did for me on Calvary. I am covered in the blood. I am your son. I am your daughter. I am your child. And I thank you, oh God. I thank you in Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, I want you just to let us know in the, in the chat. I want you to text 77222. I want you to reach out to us and let us know. I just prayed that prayer and I'm accepting the salvation that Christ has paid the price for me. Our praise team is gonna come and they're gonna lead us in a song a song that says, I am no longer a slave. And I want you to sing along. I want you to billow this song out from the bottom of your soul because in this moment right now, you recognize that Christ has paid it all. <laughs>